you wouldn't think it's revolutionary for a country to have a set of long-term goals, which is completely revolutionary. You know, there's no other country in the world that has that. It's all just short-term electoral cycles. So nobody really knows wh- where we are. You've got your, your manifesto and your programme for government for the next, you know, say five years, and that's what you're looking to achieve. But therein lies the problem with the ageing population, with addressing issues around automation and AI, addressing issues around climate, you know, all of those sorts of things. They, they, they span way beyond. And so the political system doesn't kind of um, account for that. So having those seven long-term goals, it gives the whole country of Wales, well, we know where we're going, and having that long-term vision is really important. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter, and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Sophie Howe. Sophie was the world's first future generations commissioner, where she served the post for the Welsh government for the past seven years. The commissioner post came about after the Welsh government passed the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which brought the climate crisis, the mental health crisis, the health crisis, inequality crisis, oppression crisis into sharp focus and made it law that everything the Welsh government does has to address the well-being of future generations. Sophie joined me to talk through the act in detail and what they have achieved over the past seven years. This is an extraordinary interview. The Welsh government has achieved what many of my podcast guests say simply must happen, that we must take a holistic approach to economics, that we must take a holistic approach to well-being, to ecosystem well-being, that we must radically reform the way that we think about our communities, our nationality, art, education, if we are to navigate the crisis. Wales has proven that despite what very many right-wing governments around the world have to say that we cannot afford to change, that not only can we absolutely afford to make those changes, but that we must afford to make those changes and that it is not as complex as it would seem on the outset. Systemic change is difficult, but it is achievable. And it is certainly achievable when leaders agree to shift their mental framework for understanding their role, moving from thinking about short-term wins to long-term responsibilities. It is really quite extraordinary what Wales has achieved. They've inspired other nations around the world to implement a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And Sophie's now working with the UN to create an international framework. This is a piece of legislation that genuinely implements the vast majority of solutions that we know we need on a national level. It really proves that it can be done and should be done. And for those of us who don't have the pleasure of living in Wales, we need to be asking ourselves, why isn't our government doing this? And how can we lobby them to demand it? I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Sophie, thank you so much for t- making time for Planet Critical. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you were the world's first commissioner for the unborn, the future generations commissioner of Wales. How did that post come about? 
Um, well, Wales, um, Wales passed a law in 2015, the, um, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Um, perhaps I can tell you a bit more about what it what it does in a moment. But it, but that law established a future an independent future generations commissioner to hold up the government and other public institutions to account. But I suppose the the history of you know how does a small nation come to pass quite a groundbreaking um, piece of legislation is um, you know there was a there'd been in the government of Wales Act. This is when the Welsh government was established back in 1999. This um, laws which said sustainable development should be a central organising principle. Um, in reality, that didn't really mean much. It meant that the environment minister would sort of bring a report to the, the Senate, the Parliament once once a year. Um, didn't have much engagement or involvement from other ministers. Um, and um, this particular environment minister, Jane Davidson, was really frustrated um, about that that it wasn't really meaning anything and it wasn't driving any particular change or so on. So she managed to convince the then uh, first minister that. Um, that we should put that on a statutory foot in. Um, it was helped along a bit, and this is, you know, often the sort of politics of things, that at the time it was just when the, that, you know, David Cameron and Nick Clegg um, formed that coalition in Westminster. They abolished the, um, the UK Sustainable Development Commission. Um, Wales always likes to do things a bit differently, so we said not only will we not abolish it, we'll put it on the statutory um, foot in. So that's how the legislation came about and then the goals within it seven long-term well-being goals which all of our um, institutions have to take action to reach they were developed in conversation with the citizens of wales where um a big conversation was run called the wales we want where the question was posed what the wales you want to leave behind to your children your grandchildren and future generations depend so the citizens of wales came up with the principles that are now the long-term aspiration for wales Oh, wonderful. And how did you, um, just out of curiosity, how did you organise that process being in conversation with all of the citizens? So um, the government commissioned um, a third sector organisation who reached out to all of their networks. There were a range of different things. There were online platforms. There were, you know, town hall, town hall meetings. There were, um, you know, in particular communities ran their own version of that so that's the Natalie we want for example um you know and, and they engage with their communities we were reaching out to women's institute young farmers all of these things and then we corralled all of that information back into the center um and did this analysis of what people were saying to come up with i think it was 13 different sort of uh visions if you like then about a more equal Wales, about protecting our natural resources, about the importance of the Welsh culture and heritage and part, being able to pass that on to future generations. Um, mm. And then through its passage, looking also at what was happening at the UN at that time, the development of the Sustainable Development Goals, we brought that down to seven long-term well-being goals for Wales. Excellent. And I've got those written out. Um, so, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were... A prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, a healthier Wales, a more equal Wales, a Wales of cohesive communities, a Wales of vi- a vibrant culture, and a globally responsible Wales. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's Wonderful. absolutely right. And um, I mean, none of those sound, you know, well, you know, why wouldn't you want all those things? They don't sound particularly um, exciting. But actually, if you look at the statutory definitions beneath them, particularly the statutory definition of a prosperous Wales, um, that is really taking us off in a much more progressive direction. So it talks about um, a productive, innovative, low-carbon society, one which uses resources efficiently and proportionately and acts on climate change, and one which develops a, a well-educated population with the skills to enable them to access decent work. 
So, you know, you might note the omission there. Prosperity in Wales, as set out in law, does not reference GDP at all. Um, right. And prosperity is within planetary boundaries. So, um, you know, some of those, that's where we start going off on a completely different direction to, to how things have normally been done. And I mean, how is that? Was it that there were a couple of people in government that had a particular vision? I mean, because Wales seems to be way ahead of most other nations in, in Europe, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, Wales has got quite a, a history um, of progressive policymaking. And um, it was quite interesting that the first minister that I worked for in, in government, actually, Roger Morgan, um, describe the Welsh as pathologically modest, um, which is sort of, you know, a good thing. Being modest is a good thing. But also there are these amazing things that Wales does and is renowned for, like we're third in the entire world for recycling. Um, for example, like we produce this future generation. Act. I had no idea. Um, like you can, like there's a coastal path, which is accessible to everyone around the entire coast of Wales, which become a kind of major tourist um, attraction like we're the only country in the world who's doing something which I love called bums on roads well I call it bums on roads so recycling nappies into kind of roads resurfacing um, material there's loads of like cool stuff that goes on in Wales but I suppose yeah we're, we're pathologically um, pathologically modest so I think that there is this progressive agenda in Wales. The politics in Wales has been stable. Labour have always been in government since the beginning of devolution. The main opposition side probably are, you know, to the left centre. And of course you have your political, you know, what we say in Wales, argy bargy, you know, your political kind of conflict or what have you. Um, but actually there is that consensus, even from the Conservatives in some instances, around a kind of progressive agenda for Wales. That is fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to ask this as a Scot, and you might not be able to comment on it, but obviously a lot of politics in Scotland is centred around this nationalist debate. And um, some Scots, myself included, feel like not a lot of policy making around other important things gets done because of the focus on nationalism. Um, what is the independence debate in Wales? And how have you been able to continue with a progressive agenda um, that yeah. is actually impacting your population without focusing on the, why not take the independence path instead, essentially, I think is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's never been as prominent a, um, an issue or a desire um, amongst the, the Welsh population. Obviously, you know, Clyde Henry, um, you know, their mission is for independence for Wales. Over recent years, particularly post-Brexit, um, mm. And particularly since we've had a Conservative government, I think there's been an increasing move of uh, people describing themselves actually as indicurious, um, as, as a new term that's kind of emerged in Wales. But it's never really gained the traction in the same way that it has in Scotland. And I think, you know, as someone who, um, you know, comes from a political background, I'm, you know, not a politician anymore. Thankfully, I've you know, been, been into rehabilitation and I'm, you know, I'm now clean. Um, but <laughs> actually, um, I think that the Labour Party actually plays, um, um, I don't know, but maybe not played clever politics, maybe that's the wrong term, but they actually embraced the, the Welsh language. Um, they embraced things that were going to make Wales different and unique. Um, and that is almost sort of 
you know, quenched the thirst, I suppose, for a real sort of push for further, um, you know, for independence and and so on. Um, so we're not really in the in the same place, and maybe you know that is what's allowed Wales, therefore, to focus on quite progressive policy agendas. I mean, these are incredibly progressive policy agendas. Uh, before we get into the sort of nuts and bolts of the act, which I would love to talk through in greater detail, um, just for anybody listening, and you'll have to correct me exactly on the details, but last week Wales sort of banned any new road building projects because they were deemed to have too high emissions uh, and therefore we can't go ahead with them. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So there's a, there's a bit of a... A history to this, which um, is you know clearly linked to the um, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. So, um, one of the first big tests of the legislation, and I think it's important to say that um, you know as a Future Generations Commissioner, I can't force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. I you know could potentially, or a citizen or a group of citizens could potentially take the government or other institutions to judicial review for not properly applying the act. But it doesn't give those sort of direct. Um, you know, legal enforcement powers for individuals to say my, you know, my the, the rights of, you know, my future have been um, contravened or, or anything like that. So the first big test was government. Uh, the government had had these plans um, on their books for a long time to um, build a 13-mile stretch of motorway to deal with a problem of congestion um, at the M4 around Newport. So there's definitely, you know, problems with congestion there. That's um, That's without a doubt. And what you know, this was just at the beginning of the future generations. That what we're talking here is the things that we're requiring people to do to think to the long term, to apply a kind of good ancestor test, to prevent problems, to be holistic and joined up in their thinking and their policy making. You know, it's all very well and good to put that on paper, but actually getting people to do that is much, much harder. Um, so they were still going to press ahead with these plans to build this motorway to deal with the problem of congestion. So, you know, the same old solution to the same old problem. And, you know, we all know that what happens, you build a road and we fill it. And, you know, in the next 15 years, you'll need to build another road and you're never doing modal shift because you're investing all your money in roads and you're still, you know, increasing your carbon emissions and and so on. So I intervened in that issue and I asked the government to explain to me how they'd applied the Future Generations Act. Um, I asked them had to explain to me how they'd applied this definition of a, a prosperous Wales, productive, innovative, low carbon on climate change, so on, so on, how they'd accounted for the kind of carbon emissions around um, around that. I asked them to explain to me how it was in line with the goal of a resilient Wales, which is um, talks about enhancing and maintaining um, our ecosystems and, and nature. The plans were to go through um, a nature reserve, um, which would have been irreparably damaged. Um, how is it in line with the goal of a healthier Wales? What have you considered in terms of rates of air pollution? What have you considered in terms of our rates of obesity? Um, actually, you know, so... So what you need to do with the Future Generations Act, you need to choose the solutions or choose the policies that make the biggest positive contribution to as many of the well-being goals as possible. Um, and, you know, equally in terms of the goal of a more equal Wales, can you explain to me why you've chosen to build this road Because and to invest actually it's going to be the entire of the Welsh government borrowing capacity on this road um, when 25% of the lowest income families in um in this area, don't own a car. So mm. how is that applying the goals of more equal Wales? You're going to be spending all of your money for something which doesn't advantage at all, um, you know, the lower income families. So I suppose, cut a long story short, the government really struggled to justify that. And even though it was considered that it was a done deal, this road was definitely going to be going ahead. It would have been in the making for like, you know, probably 
not not far off a, a decade, um, the government changed their mind. They applied the Future Generations Act and um, the First Minister cancelled the road building programme instead setting up a commission which used the Future Generations Act as its frame to come up with different solutions around public transport, active travel, um, and uh, a few other kind of bits and bobs. Since then, um, I intervened further to say, well, the problem, why you thought that building that road is acceptable is because your entire transport strategy is not aligned with the Future Generations Act. So that needs to change. So we work with the government to do that. So we put um, walking and cycling at the top of what's called the transport hierarchy. So that has to be the first port of call as a solution. Um, and mm. private car use is at the bottom of that. So only if there are no other possible solutions, um, should that be an option? Then I challenged them on their investment. So I was saying, well, on the one hand, you've just declared a climate emergency and putting new money into, um, you know, interventions around that climate emergency. On the other hand, you're spending two thirds of your infrastructure investment budget on building roads. So mm. dealt with the M4. We've got a new transport strategy. There are, however, in your infrastructure investment plan, 55 roads which are about to be built. So that does not stack up. So I challenged them again around that. So two years ago, we saw the budget shift from two thirds of um, our infrastructure investment being spent on roads down to a third. Um, and we've got a new infrastructure investment plan which deprioritizes um, road building. And then the challenge on the 55 that were about to be built, why are you building them? haven't started building them yet they were perhaps agreed before the future generations that came into force you now have these new legal duties so the government set up a, well, a road review and um, framed around the future generations act to say should we be building these roads or not does do, do, does it meet do they meet the test of the future generations act and the answer in the main was no so um roads will not be built most of those 55 um were cancelled the only ones that are going ahead are ones where there are small kind of safety improvements to existing roads and where they don't increase carbon emissions. But new roads um, off the table in ways. That is absolutely incredible. Congratulations. Well done. It's just amazing. Has there been any pushback from citizens on that? Yes, um, definitely. I mean, I suppose the starting point on the M4 was it was very much an argument that was... Um, you know, economy versus environment argument, which is, you know, how these things often play out. The difference here, though, is that, you know, generally the economy always wins, the environment always loses, but here environment won. And um, I don't I don't think economy lost. I think it's just pushing people into thinking about things in a, you know, in a, in a different way. But Absolutely. back then, that was sort of 2017, 28, yeah, 2017, I think it was, you know, the CBI wanted my head on a plate and, you know, wanted me to resign. And, you know, and all of this was terrible commissioner woman. Um, who is this future's witch coming to, you know, make us do things that we don't want to do. Um, but, and then in terms of the current announcement, so it was only last week that these road schemes were finally sort of cancelled. You know, what you do get is politicians who have been part of voting for the declaration of a climate emergency and so on. And, you know, might have voted, you know, might have been supportive of cancelling the M4. But, then it comes to their patch and the relief road or the bypass or whatever that's needed in their patch. And there's a reason why mm. that's in a special case. Um, mm. And I suppose the power of having an independent commissioner who, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not accountable to the electorate. I'm accountable to the unborn, if you like. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit of a weird concept, but that's where I am able to, to challenge those politicians and say, well, you can't have it both ways. There are not special cases because, you know, everything's a special case, isn't it? And then nothing ever changes. And at some point, there is going to have to be some pain 
in terms of we're not going to see the improvements in public transport in the very short term um, because what we need to do is to stop spending on roads, reinvest in public transport to get to a better place. But there's going to be a lag in that process and there's going to be some pain to people um, in between. But, you know, the pain is going to be even greater if we don't reduce our carbon emissions, isn't it? Absolutely. Moving into the nuts and bolts of the Act, um, I suppose to start off, my question would be... A lot of people sort of um, are resistant, a lot of leaders are sort of resistant to genuinely sort of tackling uh, the climate crisis in a way that it needs to be because it's a it's a quote unquote wicked problem. It's horribly complex. How are we going to have to change? How are we going to change everything? The fact that we need to change so many different things at the same time, um, it sort of creates this huge sort of psychological barrier that people seem unwilling at, or at, and even at times unable to overcome. However, you have proven that it is possible to sort of hold all of these things in mind. Um, and make good holistic decisions. How did you find that process? Was it quite difficult to begin with? Because I imagine it's a very different way of thinking to other sort of like, I don't know, uh, linear processes that happen in government and institutions typically. Could you walk through your journey of like the evolution of your own yeah. thinking and sort of to reveal in fact that it is actually quite easy when you sort of put it all together in terms of the well-being of your citizens? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, the first thing to say is that Having this vision, these seven long-term goals, is absolutely critical. And, you know, I always say you wouldn't think it was revolutionary for a country to have a set of long-term goals, but it's completely revolutionary. You know, there's no other country in the world that has that. It's all just short-term electoral cycles. So nobody really knows wh- where we are. You've got your, your manifesto and your programme for government for the next, you know, say, five years, and that's what you're looking to achieve. But therein lies the problem with the ageing population, with addressing issues around automation and AI, addressing issues around climate. You know, all of those sorts of things, they, they, they span way beyond. And so the political system doesn't kind of um, account for that. So having those seven long-term goals, it gives the whole country of Wales, well, we know where we're going. They're, they're, I mean, what I would say is they're not perfect because you can't possibly know what future generations will want or, or need. But we're giving our best guess and having that long-term vision is really important. So that sets the kind of context of brain and the decisions that we take. The Act then sets out uh, what are called five ways of working or the sustainable development principle. And those, um, they're like the, the ways in which we should take decisions. And um, so they are, we must demonstrate how we consider the long-term impact of the things that we want to do or need to, need to do. So what are the future trends and scenarios telling us? You know, what do we know about, you know, potential scenarios around technology, around climate, around, you know, all of these different things. Then we must seek prevent problems from occurring or getting worse. Um, you know, prevention is better than cure. That's easy said, less easy done, because it means, again, spending for the long term, investing now to prevent problems occurring later. Um, one of the critical elements um, then of these five ways of working is integration. So this is recognising that everything's connected to everything. And it is, there's, you know, one thing that I've spent a huge amount of my time doing as Future Generations Commissioner, it's joining the dots between different policy areas. I spend an inordinate amount of time introducing civil servants to each other in different departments, um, you know, to say, okay, um, we've got a commitment to build 20,000 low-carbon homes. That's good. That's a good thing to do. What we now need to join up is there needs to be a skills pipeline to develop the skills to build those low-carbon homes, because otherwise we're not going to be able to achieve it. There needs to be a focus on the foundational economy so that we are reaching that goal of get, you know, giving people access to decent work in community and creating cohesive communities and addressing inequality. So it's all these different things kind of need to be joined up um, there. And, you know, 
I think increasingly I'm seeing that integration happening um, across large government. And then it's collaboration, so working together, you know, within government, beyond government, with the voluntary sector, with business and so on. And then the final principle is involving citizens in decision-making process. So those five principles, in a way, if all decisions were taken in line with those five principles, you'd almost sort of reach those seven well-being goals by default because they're just common sense, you know, long-term decision-making. So that's the framework. We're we're lucky that we've got a framework to do that. But of course, in the early days of being a commissioner, I mean, everyone wanted to just tick boxes. You know, if you saw decision, you know, logs of things, you know, they'd all reference the seven goals. Um, They wouldn't actually understand what it was that they were talking about. They'd all reference five ways of working. Um, Sometimes they were like reinventing the goals and making them up to sort of fit their own, you know, what it is that they'd always done. Um, And my role really is to be really to try and steer them away from a tick box approach to get people really thinking um, and being inspired by the vision that we've got in Wales and innovating, thinking about how we can do things differently. And there's like, you know, a really good example of that in, um, so mentioned Wales is, a third in the world for its rates of recycling. And we've set this aspiration to be um, zero waste by 2050. Um, so what government looked at when they were setting the zero waste strategy is how do you reach zero waste in a way which addresses, maximises the contribution to all seven of the wellbeing goals? So how do you like reduce waste and tackle some long-term health issues? But it's not a thinking that will generally happen. So our approach to reducing waste is things like um, government investment in the library of things. So communities are coming together to borrow things um, that they would otherwise be buying and adding to their you know, carbon footprint and, and so on. Now, that reduces waste. It also brings communities together. It also saves people money. Um, and um, things like repair cafes. So go along and get your whatever, your phone, your microwave, your, I don't know, whatever it might be, repaired. Um, and that commu- those community cafes are also ha- helping to tackle loneliness and isolation because you've got people in there who are volunteering, you've got people in there who are coming to bring their um, their things, school uniform swap shops. Um, you know, instead of so instead of all of that school uniform going to landfill, they're being passed down to the next year, which is, means that parents who can't afford for school uniform are spending a quid on school uniform rather than fifty, um, and is not going to landfill. So. When you apply that holistic framework of how do we do this thing we need to do in a way which is going to have this broader, bigger impact, and that's when you start to see some magic happening, I think. That is absolutely amazing. I, I'm just, I'm just cheesy. It's just, <laughs> I just, I speak to so many people on this podcast, so many experts, and these are the things that they say must happen in government mm-hmm. if we are to navigate yeah. Yeah. the crisis. And it is so exciting um, and inspiring and hopeful to see a government actually enacting that and to prove it's yeah. not all that hard. Yeah. I mean, are there other governments that have sort of come to Wales and said, we're very interested in this, we see it working, can you help us figure out how to yeah. do it for ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so uh, you'll be pleased to know this if you don't know um, already, but the, the next one will be Scotland. So the SNP had a commitment in their manifesto to have a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. So that's currently in development in Scotland and we're liaising and working with the, you know, the Scottish government on, on that and sharing the warts and all lessons from, um, from Wales. Um, there was a private members bill in the UK Parliament, which was led by Lord John Bird, who was, um, he's the founder of The Big Issue and he's in the House of Lords. Um, mm. He was, came to Wales, we happened to share a platform at a conference 
And he was like, wow, this is amazing. We need, we need this act in, in the UK. Laid a private mm. member's bill. Um, notoriously difficult to get through. Um, actually, I think it was Jacob Rees-Mogg and his um, Rowley's Whip who kind of finally um, did, the, um, did the passage over. But it started to build a movement. And I think there's some real opportunities there with, you know, potentially a Labour government um, in the next few years. Um, Ed Miliband, for example, is a real fan of the Future Generations yeah. Act and, um, and so on. Um, just on my last day as commissioner, this was a really nice leaving present. Um, a Future Generations bill was laid in the Irish Parliament. Um, so that is, um, you know, progressing, uh, progressing there. Um, and then I suppose one of the most exciting developments is we've been doing a lot of work with the UN to try and get the UN on board um, with this because the power of the UN um, setting this as a sort of standard in having kind of trickle-down um, effect. So um, at the beginning of last year, I think it was, the UN Secretary General proposed um, in his kind of, it's called our common agenda, his, his policy manifesto for, for the UN for the next few years, that there should be a UN declaration for future generations. So that's currently being worked up and negotiated. We're expecting that in 2024. And um, this year, there will be the appointment of a UN special envoy for future generations, which is the sort of UN equivalent of my role, and some reforms to the UN's own infrastructure. And from that, I mean, you know, I'm about to, you know, I'll finish talking to you later on, and I'm going to meet with some people from the Lithuanian parliament who are kind of, you know, really interested in what we're doing. Spoke to people in Finland, in Sweden. Um, I'm going to be um, going out to Australia in the next few weeks to talk to some of their politicians and others, similarly in New Zealand. So there's loads of interest in what we've been doing in Wales. And I think there's like this real moment in time really to sort of push this agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I would completely agree with you. It seems such a no-brainer. This this is sort of the thing to happen. And I would just also like to point out that I do really love the fact that you are... um, the world's first commissioner for the unborn and you're awesome. also a woman awesome. uh, because this is what I scientists and social scientists and even you know I had a doctor uh, inter- interviewed a medical doctor recently um, who was like it's women they've got to be the future <laughs> the reign of men has to end it is women who are capable of this kind of web thinking collective thinking that will be able to navigate yeah. the upcoming crisis that men have made yeah I, and I, you know, I think you're so right and if, even if you look at so nine of the top 13 happiest countries, according to the World Happiness Index, are either run or recently been run by women. Um, so that's no, you know, that's no surprise. I think women prioritise different things. Um, I think that, you know, and if you look at some of the movements that, you know, people like Justin Jardin have been at the forefront of, kinder and compassionate politics, um, well-being economies and so on, I really see that... Um, well-being of future generations and the development of the well-being economics um, movement and well-being uh, metrics are two sides of the same coin. So I think that the real, at the moment, they're kind of weirdly going off on sort of parallel tracks. But part of what I want to do now in work that I'm, I, I'm doing, you know, as I've left being a commissioner is trying to bring those two things together because I think there's some huge opportunities around that. Absolutely. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of the act. I've said this about three times now, but let, let's actually do it this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now that we've given all the great examples, we've done it. I've done it a bit back to front. A yeah. prosperous Wales. What does that mean? You've said that it doesn't reference GDP, which every single um, decent economist would salute you for. What does a prosperous mm-hmm. Wales mean? Well, I mean, it's it's basically it's what it says in the law: it's productive, innovative, low carbon society. It's a society that uses, you know, that 
uses not beyond its share of resources. Um, it's one that recognises the impact of climate change and therefore the economy has to be framed within the context of a, of a climate crisis. And it's one which um, focuses on decent work, not just any old work. Um, and, the, and the decent work uh, uh, terminology there is really important because when you then link that back to achieving the other well-being goals, decent work is really yeah. important. So decent work um, is a massive contributing factor to our physical and mental health and well-being. It's a massive contributing factor, obviously, in, in um, addressing inequality um, and so on. Decent work has the potential to, you know, um, regenerate and reinvigorate communities and, and, and so on. So um, that's why that's, those sort of specific definitions are really, really important. And so can you give examples of, of decent work and then indecent work? <laughs> indecent work, that's a good one. Um, so, you know, uh, so, you know a, a big sort of strategic policy level, the Welsh government has something called the economic contract. So where they are um, giving money um, to uh, the private sector. So pre-COVID, I think there maybe there was like 800 um, you know, private sector organisations in Wales that had some government grant or, or another. Obviously, during COVID, that went up massively. Um, so the economic contract requires them to sign up to um, having a focus on, on, on upskilling through future skills for their, um, for their workforce. It requires them to um, focus on the health and well-being of their workforce and it requires them to um, you know, set out a kind of decarbonisation plan. So we would say that you know, that's a sort of policy driver. I don't think it's worked effectively enough because... The aspirations are there, but it hasn't been closely monitored enough. And there's going to be some reforms to that um, coming forward because of the likes of myself and the TUC and a few others have been kind of agitating um, around it. But the principles um, are right. But it's, you know, decent work is, you know, are you paying workers fairly? Um, are you, you know, are you, uh, you know, are you adding to the climate crisis or are you helping to, um, to resolve it? And um, what does the sort of profile of your work Force look like in terms of women, disabled people, black and minority ethnic people, and um, what are the sort of broader terms and conditions um, for your workforce, and how well do those broader terms and conditions help to help us to reach those seven well-being goals? So those are the sorts of definitions of decent work. Um, and there's actually um, another piece of legislation which is just going through the Senate at the moment called the Social Partnership and Procurement Bill. Um, that puts on a statutory uh, footing a social partnership between government, business, trade unions, um, and other sort of public sector employers. And it's a really interesting thing that's coming out of that. For example, during COVID, that social partnership council was established. And I think that was one of the, the most significant reasons why Wales really outperformed England, for example, on Test, Track and Trace, because we were doing it collaboratively across that partnership um, on you know uh, procurement. We weren't procuring into the you know, private sector with our, you know, into our, our friends. We were procuring into the foundational economy to support those wider goals. So, you know, none of it's perfect. You know, if I were to say to you, yes, we've got this, you know, legislation and these goals and, you know, and, and now everything in Wales is fabulous. It's definitely not, but it's a good starting point. All right. And a resilient Wales. You said something about using uh, resources that are available. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so resilient Wales is um, basically about um, enhancing and maintaining um, our ecosystems um, in Wales. So really what we're trying to do is to reverse the damage to nature. So to, to stop it, to stop doing any further damage and then to reverse it, to, so to restore 
um, nature and uh, natural resources Wales, which are kind of like our, our environment agency, if, if you like, um, are people who are monitoring, you know, are we actually doing that? So um, we're not yet seeing a reverse of the damage that we've done, but there are, you know, lots of quite exciting policies coming in to try and um, address that. So restoration of peatlands, um, the establishment of a national nature service, which I think, you know, which is something I've been um, involved in. So this is how do we um, upskill people for jobs in nature because there's massive gaps around that. Changes to um, our approach to, you know, agriculture and farming, which I think is possibly one of the only positive things to come out of um, Brexit. That we're able to sort of do that and okay. do that ourselves. So again, not perfect you know there's big issues in terms of welsh rivers at the moment and pollution levels in welsh rivers and, and so on but the policy approaches that are being put in place are promising in terms of how they they go forward and um, planning policy in wales you must demonstrate that you're not harming nature and actually you know there's a positive duty to enhance nature so those are the sorts of things that it covers wonderful and a healthier wales uh, what so that's that about um, that's about sort of creating the conditions where people are able to maximise their physical and mental health and well-being. So what we're saying then, and when you look at that kind of combined with those five ways of working, so thinking to the long term, preventing problems from failing or, or getting worse, what we're really trying to say is that um, we want to be creating the conditions where where physical and mental health can be maximised. So this isn't just about you know you've got a mental health condition and you can get to see a GP quicker or you need a hip replacement um so you know when we'll cut waiting times those things are important but what we're saying is we should be focusing on you know why you know what could we have done to improve your mental health from the beginning and why is it you need a hip replacement could we have intervened earlier in terms of physical activity or whatever it you know whatever it um whatever it might be so there is this shift towards thinking um you know, about what, what Michael Marmot calls these, the wider determinants of health and making the connection. So, um, you know, just back to the roads issue, that's one of the key considerations in terms of our transport policy. What, what does a transport policy that improves health look like? And there's some really good kind of local examples of that. So perhaps I can just sort of take a moment to play this one out to you. So one of the things that we have... Um, does is it sets up something called public services boards in each local authority area. So all of the key public services in that area, plus the voluntary sector, higher education and, and business and so on, come together and they have collective duties to set a wellbeing plan for their, uh, their area. This is part of this kind of approach to collaboration. And as a result of that, in Cardiff, our capital city, um, public health consultant was seconded to the council to lead on the development of a transportation strategy. Now, when you apply a public health lens to a transport issue, you get a completely different set of solutions. So what he did was, right, look at the areas with um, the highest levels of air pollution, the lowest levels of life expectancy, um, and said, well, actually, we need to prioritise investment in active travel and public transport in those areas. Um, then joining up with the goal of a resilient Wales, which is about you know restoring nature, what he took was these kind of urban concrete jungles where um, predominantly in, in some of those areas, black Asian minority ethnic people and um, poorer people who there's a correlation to not having access to nature um, amongst those, uh, those demographics. 
in creating the cycle lanes and the public transport infrastructure, they did that using sustainable urban drainage. They completely greened these communities. So they turned these former concrete jungles into these like just amazing green areas. So that has had the impact of, you know, reducing air pollution and getting people physically, um, more physically active because they've got means to do that. Regenerating that community to make um, to meet the goal of a, a cohesive, um, a way of cohesive community, safe, attractive, vibrant communities, and it helps to address inequality because we're targeting those people with the lowest levels of life expectancy um, in our poorest communities, um, and it you know helps to meet the goal of a resilient Wales because we're restoring nature in, um, in urban communities. So. That's a really good example of how when you might start from an issue of transport, but when you then say, right, how do we do transport in a way which has a contribution to these other goals, you get some really interesting stuff. Absolutely. And I assume that as well ties into a more equal Wales if you're investing in underprivileged communities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Could you speak more to that that goal? How else is it sort of uh, playing out in policy? More equal Wales. So um, some... Wales has um, sort of declared itself as a, an anti-racist nation, um, or we're, we're trying to become an anti-racist nation, I should say. Um, I think there's some quite distinct um, differences, for example, in terms of the quite honest approach that the Welsh Government have taken around about where we are in terms of, of racism. So yeah, we have this aspiration to be an anti-racist nation because at the moment... You know, I think probably every nation is a racist nation, including, you know, including Wales, because you've only got to look at all of the statistics yeah. around um, how, um, you know, various things play out um, for Black Asian minority ethnic people. Um, Wales has become the first country to have Black history as a mandatory part of our school curriculum, um, which is um, which is really exciting. Um, and this anti-racist Wales plan, you know, permeates every aspect of what sort of public policy does from, you know, recruitment, um, workforce diversity, it's setting up a racial disparity unit so that we're across all of our policy areas able to track, you know, where are these, um, uh, racial disparities, um, it's similar to what's happening in other parts of the country, reviewers, you know, monuments and um, things like that to, to, to sort of French chunk uh, around anti-slavery. And that anti-racist Wales approach is being built into everything that the government is asking public institutions to do. So if it's giving, you know, in, its, in the money that it gives to the Arts Council, for example, it's saying, you know, you have to apply the Future Generations Act and, you know, here are specific things on the goal of the, of the more equal Wales. Um, in terms of women... Um, you know, there are long issues still outstanding for, for women, particularly around violence against women and girls. Um, when I worked in government, I took to a, a violence against women and girls um, bill in Wales, which was uh, quite progressive, but it's probably not making the impact that we want to see. So again, embedding um, educational and healthy relationships in school curriculums. Um, we have um, a big approach in Wales around identifying domestic abuse victims and so on earlier. There's lots going on, but still it's one of the big unsolved issues, in my view. And what does that education look like? Um... So this is the, one of the things I'm kind of most excited about. So yeah. um, in Wales, we've reformed our school curriculum in line with the Future Generations Act. So what we've looked at is what are the kind of skills that um, children, young people need, not just to be able to access whatever jobs you know, there are going to be in the future. We don't quite know 
There's, you know, studies which suggest 65% of children entering, entering primary school now will go on to do jobs which don't even exist. Now, you know, maybe they'll be drone pilots or, you know, well, you know, they will have to be far, far more jobs focused in the green economy and, and so on and so on. But we don't know exactly what they might be. What we do know um, is the sorts of skills that they're likely to need. So they are very much the kind of human skills. So cooperation, collaboration, empathy, um, critical thinking, um, being able to work through, you know, the integrity of information you're given and all of those sorts of things. And what we also know is that the old curriculum, the old way of learning, te- you know, teaching and learning in schools absolutely does not do any of these things. It delivers rote learning and, you know, um, asks you to regurgitate a load of knowledge that you've kind of remembered. So um, the curriculum in Wales now has sort of four outcomes um, and a lot of flexibility for teachers um, to frame how they teach those outcomes and oh, the subjects to achieve those outcomes. Um, so the outcomes are healthy, active and confident learners. So we're putting physical and mental health of our learners, you know, right up there as one of the priorities, not one of these like, you know, things which you add on at the end. Um, creative and enterprising um, citizens. Um, uh, we're focusing on creating learners who kind of have a, a love of learning. You know, there's a thing. Um, have a love of learning. Um, and then um, the one which... I particularly like is um, ethical and informed citizens. Now, imagine if all of us had been through a curriculum where the intended outcome was to create ethically informed, you know, global citizens. What would maybe it wouldn't be in a crisis of climate and so on? I don't know. And I suppose just a little kind of anecdote on that. But how does that play out in practice? So, a few months ago, I was having um, a glass of wine with some school members, and um, I brought. I've got five children, but my, this was definitely my eight-year-old um, daughter. And one of them had said oh, that her daughter had asked for a whittling knife for her birthday. And then another man piped up and said, oh, yeah, my daughter had asked for a whittling knife too. And that is just a little snapshot of education in Wales because they're being educated to reconnect with nature. Forest school and outdoor learning and reconnecting with nature is a mainstream part of um, how we're doing teaching and learning in, in Wales. And... You know, not sure about the merits of giving a knife to an eight-year-old, but um, <laughs> but a whittling knife because they've been learning these skills yeah. to hard word, to interact with nature, and so on. That's like just a little anecdote, which I, you know, it just makes me so happy that that's happening in, in Wales. It's extremely revealing, and it's extremely revealing at which speed this transformation is taking place yeah. in Wales. Yeah, how wonderful. Yeah. Right, cohesive communities. I'm just so excited <laughs> to learn more. So, yeah. Um, so, um, attractive, vibrant, um, safe communities. So, this is about, um, you know, and, and you know, where people feel that they can come together. So, if we think about um, health, for example, so. If you look at what the World Health Organization say about what is the, you know, the, the, the reasons for health inequality, so whether you die young or, or live a, you know, a, a, a good long age, 35% of it is about income security, 29% of it is about your living conditions. What's the quality of the house, you know, the home that you live in? Are you living in areas of high air pollution? Do you have access to nature? 29% of what makes the difference to life expectancy. And even more interesting in a way, 19% of what makes a difference is um, social and human capital. So um, is there a sense of community in the area that you live? 
Um, you know, do you feel you've got a sense of agency in that community? Can you affect change and so on and so on? So far from that being like the fluffy stuff of community and, you know, everyone being involved and, you know, so on and so on. Actually, you know, links back to this like hardcore metrics around health. So everything that we're trying to do in Wales is really shifting towards that community focus. So big uh, moves around what we call the foundation economy. So instead of focusing our economic policy, you know, purely on inward investment and big business and, and so on, and um, what are the things in local communities that enable people to live there? So social care services, health services, um, or, you know, your local shops. Um, and so on. The government view those things in the foundational economy as the things that are worth investing in. Um, and increasingly what they're trying to do is to use the power of their procurement spend and so on into that kind of foundational um, economy. But then it's also things like I described in terms of that example in Cardiff. How do you make those communities, you know, well-connected, vibrant, um, safe? Well, you know, part of what you might do there and what Wales is doing is... Um, reducing all speed limits on roads to 20 miles per hour. Um, that makes communities um, much safer. Um, investing in public transport and active travel, that makes them more connected. Doing that in a way which greens them, makes them more attractive and more viable and, you know, and so on. So it's about all of these things kind of coming, uh, coming together. Wonderful. And how does that link to Wales's vibrant culture? And mm. it's about protecting the Welsh language as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so a Wales a vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language. So I suppose in terms of the, the language, uh, Welsh is one of the sort of fastest growing minority languages. So um, that's something again that we're really um, we're really proud of. The government has set an aspiration of a million Welsh speakers by um, by twenty fifty. So that's you know three million people in Wales, so a third of the population um, speaking mm-hmm. Welsh, which is really seen as a minority language. So um, you know there's a there's a Welsh language. Um, you know, measure. So, you know, lots of things in terms of everything having to be done bilingually, lots of investment now going into, um, you know, opportunities for people to use Welsh in their daily lives. Um, a big expansion of Welsh medium education. So, for example, my children all been into Welsh medium education where they learn everything through the medium of Welsh. So they're fluent Welsh speakers and there's this biggest growth amongst young people um, speaking Welsh. Um, and some of that is about connecting back to some of our um, Welsh-speaking rural communities um, and how are we sort of protecting, um, protecting them and the language there. And um, the other part around sort of vibrant culture is, I suppose, recognising, when we look at the sustainable development goals and the, and the definition of um, sustainability, it's, it's focused on social, economic and environmental uh, sustainability. And it completely misses the power of culture, heritage, creativity, to be like a really key part of that. So that was a big move. Actually, the, the cultural organisations, when the act was being developed, they actually all came together and said, we want to be the fourth pillar of sustainability and we can make um, you know, a massive contribution to this. So what it means, for example, is that our Arts Council in Wales have now got, um, they've just uh, redone their investment priorities for how they support arts organisations. And one of their priorities is those organisations who help those organisations to decarbonise and help in those creative organisations to communicate on climate change. The power of, you know, culture and, you know, those sort of creative industries to do that is, um, is incredible. Um, there also is an arts in health programme. So how could we use um, health and, uh, sorry, creative arts 
culture and so on to focus on bringing communities together and um, being therapeutic interventions that we do in hospital. So, you know, in my local hos- hospital, there's an art gallery there, um, which has been developed through the arts and health programme, developed with um, children and young people, bringing people who are long-term patients in to do therapeutic interventions around art and so on. So there's loads of stuff that's kind of um, that's going on there. Um, and there's some, you know, some really exciting things that are happening with the creative industries um, in Wales in line with those seven wellbeing goals. Amazing. I'm so excited to see how all of this continues to pan out in the next few years. It just sounds mm-hmm. like you're investing in all the right things. We've come to the last goal, and I suppose this is the one that I imagine is perhaps a little bit even more complicated, a globally responsible Wales. Um, Could you walk us through that and then speak to, obviously, the the Global North sort of um, relationship to extractivism and exploitation of the Global Mm -hmm. South? Mm -hmm. How does a country like Wales sort of remove itself from that um, system of oppression? Yeah, yeah. So this goal was, there was originally going to be six goals, and this the seventh goal was added in during the passage of this legislation through the Senate. So a kind of a, 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 a push from uh, from parliamentarians to, to include this goal. It's fair to say that in terms of, you know, how do you track it? And what are the measures by which we sort of assess whether we're being really responsible are quite difficult. And the, the big measures link back actually to, to climate and that goal particularly of a prosperous Wales and you know whether we're meeting our emissions and so on um but there are and it's more complicated of course because Wales doesn't have devolved competency around foreign policy and um and so on and so on um but what we can do is use the power of uh, procurement to be and and this is where you know I've done some particular work looking at what does globally responsible procurement look like um so you know what what the um uh you know, where, have you, where are the things you're buying? Where are they coming from? And, um, and so on. So organisations are kind of increasingly moving in, in that direction. Um, some of the things that we're doing are, so there's something called the um, plant scheme, which is a great word in a number of ways, because plant is the Welsh word for children. Um, mm. and, or, um, no, sorry, the Welsh word for child. Um, and also plant. So for every Welsh child, born a tree is planted in wales and in uganda um, okay. as part of this sort of um part of this program so we have planted trees to i think we're up to about three times the size of wales now um okay. in uganda um there are wales for africa programs whereby we are supporting um people with expertise in a range you know could be health or could be a range of different things to um support initiatives um in the global south um yeah, I think we probably, you know, it's one of the goals that is least understood, I would say. And people are a bit like, what, you know, what do we do? And it's a bit confusing because Wales doesn't have all the powers and all the levers that it might yeah. um, want to have in these areas. But in terms of, you know, some of the things it can do, there's some, you know, it's some interesting approaches. And if uh, Wales was independent and had sort of, you know, control over its foreign policy, is there an idea of what that goal would look like? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, we've, if that has really been kind of thought through. I mean, Wales, I suppose, take, you know, like Wales is a nation of sanctuary. For example, we take a much different approach to, um, you know, to immigration. We take, you know, and refugees, asylum seekers. 
you know, back years and years ago when there was all of them, that sort of debate around asylum seekers, access to health care and, and those sorts of things. That is an area where Wales and Slobs have got devolved competency and there was no question whatsoever that, yes, absolutely, um, you know, that access would um, would be there. So I think that, um, you know, Wales would take a different and more progressive approach, but it's not something that we've really kind of considered because I suppose in terms of the debate on independence, one, it's not as big a debate as it is in Scotland um, and really the focus has been on further devolution. Foreign policy hasn't been really part of that sort of discussion to date. All right. Okay. Understood. I think the question in terms of when we think of like our international sort of globalised financial Mm -hmm. system of, of capitalism and extractivism, it is, well, how do we sort of continue developing our own nations in like a healthier and more prosperous and resilient way that doesn't detract from very, very vulnerable nations that haven't been given the opportunity to do the same. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, And I think Wales would definitely be part, you know, Wales is um, in in Glasgow, Wales signed up to the um, anti-coal coalition. Um, You know, uh, there's been quite a number of meetings between um, Welsh ministers and um, Indigenous people uh, who are concerned about deforestation and so on, um, and some commitments there in terms of the Welsh approach to procurement. But, you know, is there more that we can do? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's more complex in a, in a non-devolved context. Then. Absolutely. So what's next for the the future commissioner? So, um, so there's a new commissioner who's um, just about to start um, his... Uh, on the 1st of March, um, someone called Derek Walker. Uh, His background is he was previously um, heading up um, an organisation called Compass, which is the kind of Wales cooperatives um, umbrella body for for social enterprises and cooperatives in Wales. So he will bring, you know, a really interesting perspective um, there. Um, I think, you know, and it'll be up to him. We will do a, you know, he's trying to do a big sort of exercise in terms of setting his own priorities, as I did at the beginning of my term. If I was having my time again, um, I think food would definitely become a kind mm. of major priority. I think probably important to say I had to narrow down the areas that I focused on because there isn't anything that isn't covered by the Future Generations Act. And so, you know, I couldn't, couldn't do it all. So I sort of set these priorities around housing, planning, transport, and then jobs and skills and education, uh, reforms to health and um, tackling childhood adversities with kind of climate and decarbonisation of the golden thread running through them all. Um, but definitely, I think I would be focusing on food. There's a, a private member's bill on a food systems um, strategy and approach um, in the parliament at the moment. Um, weirdly, the government don't appear to be supporting that, which I can't quite fathom why I'm a big supporter of it. Um, and then, you know, I think there's going to be some massive issues in terms of um, health. So health post-COVID, um, you know, yeah. how do we deal with this ongoing crisis in health whilst also shift towards prevention and more holistic thinking around health and so on. So there's a health minister in Wales, Lynyrd Morgan, who is really passionate about that. But herein lies the problem with everything really that you're trying to do is that when governments are just continuing, you know, veering from one crisis to another, Trying to find the headspace to do different things is really, really difficult. But, yeah. you know, we've got a framework in Wales which pushes them in that way, but that doesn't mean that it's not incredibly difficult. Absolutely. I wonder if in some 
perhaps not so distant future, this act will kind of reform Welsh politics as well in order to force politicians to stop thinking about these short-term electoral goals. Yeah, well, um, so the... the um, it, as One of the, the things that is written into the Act is that every five years, the Future Generations Commissioner has to produce um, something called the Future Generations Report. So that's the Commissioner's assessment of the progress that's been made and recommendations on what, you know, what governments um, should be doing going forward. And it's time specifically to land the year before the next Senate elections because it's supposed to influence the manifestos of political parties. Now, my the first Future Generations report, my report was published in May 2020. So obviously, you know, that was right in the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, which was sort of, yeah. um, you know, not how I'd envisaged it landing. But we did have the Senate elections the following year. Um, and um, the, there's not a coalition between Labour and Plaid in Wales, but there's a kind of, you know, working agreement. And so as a result of that, of the recommendations that I made, in which there were around about 500 across all the different sort of policy areas, 64% um, of the recommendations that I've made are featured in the Programme for Government in Wales. So that's not mm. a bad kind of indicator of how absolutely changing the nature of politics in Wales. Wonderful. And Sophie, what's next for you? So I've um, I set up my own business. I think it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's really, I think it's been the best job in the world. Um, and I want to continue working on this because I'm passionate about it. So my mission really is to try and help other countries to do something similar, um, to continue sort of pushing at the UN um, around that and help them form the Declaration on Future Generations. Um, I think that there's um, potential definitely in the private sector for applying a well-being of future generations framework. So like beyond ESG, um, this sort of holistic framework that applies a kind of good ancestor test. Um, so those, those are the things that I that I want to do. But, you know, I'm, I'm three weeks into not being the commissioner, so I'm still trying to get my head around that really. Um, all right, Sophie, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Two people I really recommend. So Kate Rayworth and Donut Economics. Um, I've had her, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, um, weirdly, this is her partner, Roman Snarik, um, okay. who has written the book, The Good Ancestor, um, big fan of, um, of his work. And um, often we end up on the sort of same platforms together. We, um, we, we bounce ideas off each other. And, um, you know, Roman is a, um, a philosopher, so I suppose this is sort of theory of it. And then I sort of come in and do a bit of the, well, practically, this is how it's happened in Wales. Oh, yeah. yeah it was really interesting wonderful Sophie thank you so much for your time this was just extraordinary oh, you're very welcome if you want to learn more about the Future Generations Act I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com as always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.